I mean, if Mt. Gox is 95% of trading volume, we weren't sure if Bitcoin's gonna come back. I think people look at FTX Day and they go, wow, this is like this is like an apocalypse. Well, this is far worse. Imagine FTX, Binance, Coinbase, and Kraken all going down at the same time. That's the equivalence. You're listening to Because of Bitcoin, a podcast that shares the personal stories of how Bitcoin is having a real impact in people's lives, including mine. I'm your host, Mauricio Di Bartolomeo, the co-founder and CSO of Ledit. And without further ado, let's get started with today's story. The earliest adopters of Bitcoin are no strangers to volatility. They were born in it, and they've experienced as many market cycles in 15 years as most traditional finance investors experience in a lifetime. But many of these early adopters were in it for something more than the money. Some were builders, others were activists, and they saw Bitcoin as a way to change the monetary system for the better. Bitcoin was born out of a system that had crashed in 2008 and left many people wondering how they were going to survive. As they were clamoring for alternatives to the system that had failed them, early adopters started to find each other and they started to share ideas. Communities were born in places like Silicon Valley, and these communities would build Bitcoin's future. They just didn't know it yet. It was in Silicon Valley back in 2013 that Dan Held found something that would put his life on a new path. Within the Bitcoin community, Dan needs no introduction. He's been there almost since the start. I wanted to know how that influential group of early Bitcoin pioneers shaped Dan's outlook on Bitcoin and on life, and how his diverse career in the industry has changed him almost 10 years after he started. He's built Bitcoin companies, he's lived through exchanges collapsing, price crashes, mergers and acquisitions, and through it all, he's still a believer. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Dan, my friend, thank you for coming on. Could you tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like? Yeah, so my, you know, it's funny, I don't have a Texas accent, but I grew up in Texas. When you were growing up, was finances or money ever a part of the conversation at your house? Yeah, it was always part of a conversation, not in more like, you know, futuristic sense or technology sense, but more in a kind of classic, like, what is money and how does it work? So in terms of like a practical business sense of how money works, my dad's a tax CPA. Money was never like a dirty word. But my parents also taught us like how to save and they didn't pay for a lot of things. And so we had to learn how to, like what money meant from a practical standpoint. Whereas I think a lot of families just consider it like taboo for some reason, you know? So I felt like I, I went out into my adulthood with a, a good foundational understanding of why money is important to a lifestyle. We'll get into Bitcoin in a second. You know, you're a guy that needs no introduction in the Bitcoin community, but before Bitcoin, could you tell us a bit about what you were focused on? What was your career before you ever heard of Bitcoin? So I was actually studying finance in undergrad. And I was in undergrad during the 2008 financial crisis. At that moment, I started to question the nature of my reality. I started to wake up from this fiat world where everything, my books, the professors and everyone on TV, they were all wrong. And I was like, how could everyone be wrong at the same time? This is insane. So a couple of friends that were like-minded at university and then also on the internet, just kind of you know, like getting connected with different communities and also like checking out like torrenting and you know things that were kind of pushing the envelope that sort of, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries envelope combined with 
seeing from my perspective that the institutions had been fundamentally broken, left my mind sort of ready for Bitcoin. And so you're you're out of the university, you, um, you're doing your finance career, and at some point, I believe around that time, you got introduced to Bitcoin. What was your aha moment with or for Bitcoin? Yeah, a couple different things. One, it was definitely not for payments. <laughs> Bitcoin for payments was not my aha moment. Let me, let me rephrase that. Legal payments. It was not for legal payments. It was for illegal payments, where censorship is one of Bitcoin's greatest value props, where transactions can't be censored. And so, so I would say it's that moment combined with the 21 million hard cap. So for me, yeah, studying finance in undergrad and looking at the 2008 financial crisis and all the bailouts, it's easy to see how a money supply that's not fixed can easily be manipulated with politicians and agencies and all sorts of individuals. So the idea that it's fixed, set in stone and can't be changed, to me represented a breakthrough in monetary, monetary policy. You have a funny story with a Cassatius coin, I believe early in the early days of Bitcoin, Cassatius coin. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And do you still have that Cassatius coin? That's the first Bitcoin I ever had as a buddy paid me back for a beer with the Cassatius coin. So it was around $8 at the time. I think 2012, we we're bouncing between $8 and $12. That's kind of the, the, the bounded range. And so I, I thought that was really cool. I was like, oh, this is great. Now, the first thing I did was figure out how to try to sell it. <laughs> well, this before I went down the rabbit hole and, and really found kind of the aha moments. So naturally, like any new coiner, I am like, how about I sell this? Because, uh, you know, I think a quote from Mark Twain summarizes it really well. To make a man or woman covet something, all you need to do is make it hard to obtain. When something is not hard to obtain, you don't value it. You know, for me, I think that's uh, was kind of like a core lesson of, of like, you know, if you just don't value something yourself, you didn't earn it or you didn't buy it yourself, you're just not going to respect it. So you got this Cassatius coin, you sold it, and... Uh... You know, presumably shortly after you started going down the rabbit hole, at what point did you realize Bitcoin would play a significant part of your life and or career? Yeah, it, this wasn't until 2013. So at the small investment firm, they wanted to open up their West Coast portfolio of assets. And so they sent me out as the, uh, I was the young analyst, but they were like, okay, we can go send this guy out there. So they moved me out to San Francisco. And while I was there, I got involved in the Bitcoin meetup scene. This is in January 2013, and at the time, there's only a dozen people in San Francisco who would go. This is like Charlie Lee, Jed McCaleb, Jesse Powell, Brian and Fred. Um, I'm like the only non-billionaire of the group, so I feel like a little under-accomplished for that original group, but it was cool. It was really exciting. I was like, wow, I'm not a crazy person. There's other people that believe in this thing. And then March 2013 hit, and the price went from $10 to 260 and then the meetup in March had like 100 people, 150 people. And there's VCs handing out business cards. And you got to remember, I'm, I'm new to Silicon Valley. I'm like three months in. So I'm still learning the lingo and I don't have any idea how product works or fundraising or the different roles in tech. I mean, I'm showing up to the meetups in business casual because that's when I got off work. So I'm like the only business, ca like for sure, the only guy in business casual that ever went to that meetup. Uh, from there, really wanted to, you know, for me, got really excited about a couple pain points. Uh, one of those pain points was around checking the price of Bitcoin. So at the time, there was no mobile app that had real-time market data. Um, so what I did is my roommate was an iOS developer. So him and I sat down and, and I spent about a month going out and looking at different UX UI design patterns, bringing those back, 
uh, looking at the, the cool solutions within each crypto or TradFi mobile products um, that had like news feeds, charts, price, live price, etc. Bundled those together into what I considered a killer application. And then we went to go iterate and build it and uh, brought it to market. But that was sort of the moment when I'm like, okay, now I'm now I'm building something. Now I feel like I'm part of it. A quick note on that. A lot of people from that era were builders. Almost everyone had a project. There was almost no one that was at that meetup that wasn't trying to tinker or build something, um, which is really interesting. Because today I think there's a lot more, like I'd say there's maybe like 5% builders or 10% builders. And most people are just kind of like, not tourists. I think that's a bad way of phrasing it, but maybe like a, watchers they're just kind of watching and see what happens but they're not at the builders themselves what is there anything that sticks out to you what was what's the first thing you remember when you think back to those meetups it was i think invigorate invigorating was probably like the primary word i'd use um this is like maybe right after like coinbase raised like a three million dollar seat or something like this is like very early it felt nice to not be a crazy person because you know being in bitcoin i i was formerly living in dallas texas and no one was into it I was thinking back to my first meetup days, which were not as early as that. I think I started my first meetups I started attending were probably sometime 2016 in Toronto. And similarly, I was the only guy wearing a suit or a, or a business casual. And um, I guess, you know, how, how did this group influence your early day beliefs on Bitcoin and perhaps other crypto assets? Well, you know, first of all, the group went on to go to great things. You know, I think when we look back on, like, how did it influence me? One is, I mean, some of these a lot of these folks are huge giants in this space. And so it, it definitely felt like I needed to go build something grand and something big and to go build and, and go try to produce value for the world. There's definitely a measure of, I think you always have to think about, and I'm, I'm pretty for, open and honest with this with quite a few folks. You have to very quickly kind of get to a mental space of being happy with what you have. I think crypto is one of the worst communities where a lot of people look at your buddy on your left and your buddy on your right. And one, there's a hundred buddies who went broke, but one buddy made a billion dollars. If you compare yourself to that, you're never going to be happy. And so kind of very early on had to be happy with, I'm happy with the amount of Bitcoin I have, or, well, you never, no one's ever perfectly happy about that. You're definitely making your peace with that, I think is like a critical function of, of anyone in any industry, by the way, this is not just crypto or, or tech. Because you just ultimately, like, you can only compare your own success to yourself. Are you achieving the things that you care to achieve? Do you feel like you did the best you could at the time? And you're going to make mistakes. You're going to not maximize your outcome. But did you feel like you made most of the right calls? Or you felt like when you made the call, you made it with the right sort of assumptions at the time? So, yeah, that, you know, that, that's, I think, kind of working with that sort of group in that era. That's kind of the takeaways is just, one, it's motivating. But at the same time, you got to stay balanced and, and mentally healthy of knowing that. It's okay if you have this outcome. It doesn't have to be equal to their outcome. This group that you speak of, of you know, the early days of your meetups, how did this group sort of lead to other opportunities in your Bitcoin career? Well, there's a couple different things. Well, the closest one to today is Jesse. I met Jesse back in 2013 and ultimately he ended up buying Interchange, but I'm skipping forward a little bit. And so without that previous relationship with Jesse, I don't, I'm not sure if we would have been acquired and I'm not sure if we would have had the same working relationship. Roger Veer is the one who reached out to buy our first app, ZeroBlock, for blockchain.com. Um, so I assume without the, some of the connections I had developed there, that that probably wouldn't have happened. Of course, there's there's tons of other folks who have helped get placed to different companies or help, helped me get into a job. 
Dan has founded not one, but two Bitcoin companies. It wasn't long after he moved to San Francisco when he started ZeroBlock back in 2013. So how did a finance professional become a successful tech founder and get acquired in only nine months? Yeah, so ZeroBlock was my first time building a product, a tech product, and I had no idea what I was doing. But fortunately, through my obsession with solving my own problem, it turns out that's how you build great products. I stumbled and bumbled my way into tech. And so the problem was, you know, there wasn't any real-time market data feeds. There weren't any news aggregators, which, by the way, this is before Coindesk. This is before Ryan Selkis even wrote a blog called Two-Bit Idiot. Like, that's, that's where that name comes from. Most people probably don't remember that. Um, this is before any crypto publications. So we used to scrape our Bitcoin, the subreddit, the hot thread. We'd also scrape uh, the Bitcoin talk forums, the, uh, the announcements and stuff like that. People loved it. The retention was phenomenal. But then I found a problem. Distribution. How do we get people to notice it? And we have no money. <laughs> Definitely had very little money. San Francisco is expensive and I was just a couple of years out of college. And so what we did, or what I did, is sharpen some of my growth hacking skills, my growth marketing. Uh, one of those was hacking the App Store ranking algorithm to rank number two for the keyword Bitcoin. And so we got tons of free installs that way. And then as well, I did some more boots on the ground marketing, which I personally, at the San Jose Bitcoin conference in May 2013, that's when our beta first came out. I walked around and said hi to everyone I met and asked them what app they used to check the price of Bitcoin on their phone and then showed them my product. I would call us the most popular app in 2013. Um, most people had zero block on their phone. And that's actually what I was known for back then, was zero block. And, and continued yeah, for the years forward too. And then we sold that to blockchain.com and I came on board at blockchain.com as the first product manager. I love hearing about the early day hustle because a lot of people that come into Bitcoin, they see where everybody is today, but uh, they don't always get to hear how you got there. I've got a comment too on that era, like the 2013 through seven, like 16 era. That was a really cold winter from 14 through 16. So at the time, everyone is a builder, right? Like everyone is building something. Well, in a bear market, they couldn't get funding for their startup. So they sold their Bitcoin at the lows to, to fund their startup, which ended up failing anyways. Jesse, for example, spent 10,000 Bitcoin keeping Kraken afloat. What if Kraken hadn't survived? That happened to most Bitcoin entre entrepreneurs and that was the coldest winter ever. That's why I went to go work at Uber. There was literally no jobs left. There was no funding, no jobs. I was early in my tech career. I wanted to go learn tech. And I wasn't sure how long the bear market was going to last. I mean, we hadn't even really come up with the whole cycle theory yet at all. But we weren't sure when it was going to come back. 2014 to 2016 was a difficult time in the Bitcoin industry. So Dan had to pivot. He wanted to sharpen his professional skills in tech at an established company. And although he didn't have the right resume, he did have the right experience. And he found a way to land a role at one of the biggest companies out there. The way I learned that how Silicon Valley works, and so I had to learn this without anyone telling me, or I had a really good, really good expertise, which was app store optimization. That's how I got uh, zero block to number two in the app store for the word Bitcoin. And just so happened that Uber was hiring for that role. It's a very specialized role. It's very nuanced. And I had done a very good job of, of building that expertise out. So at Uber, they hired me onto the writer growth team. It was a fantastic experience. I saw what big companies looked like. I saw budgets that were in the billions, what you could do with that. We were on every continent in the world. 
You see best-in-class marketers, data science, product managers. You see how best-in-class looks. And so you can mimic that. You can figure out, okay, this is what the smartest people in, in tech are looking like in terms of pedigree, experience, et cetera. And, and at the time, and this was January 2016, Uber was the hottest company to work for. This is kind of its golden era. That's fascinating. And I do want to get into when you make the transition or when you found your voice for Bitcoin content. Um, can you speak quickly as to what was the turning point that made you want to go back to crypto and, and kind of leave Uber and go start a second company? Yeah, well, you know, 2017, late 2017, the bull run happened. Uh, I met some cool founders, uh, Clark Moody, Matt Galligan. Um, Matt had an exit to AOL and Clark was a, I'd known Clark since zero block days. So we came together to build a company called Interchange, which was uh, basically back office reconciliation is the accounting software between crypto hedge fund, hedge funds and the crypto hedge fund accountants. And so we could see where all their coins were on, on exchange and on, on different addresses and they could reconcile all of their trading activity and then they could work together with their accountant to, to get all that activity sorted. So we were doing okay. A bear market hit in 2019 and, you know, we were kind of looking for like a long-term spot for this company and, and, and ended up uh, finding a good fit with Kraken. So Kraken acquired our company. Um, so they bought the software and the team and uh, I came on board there and I ran them. While most people know Dan today because of his writings about Bitcoin, he wasn't always a Bitcoin content creator. But his years of experience put him in a position to be a leading voice in the community. And it all started back in 2018 because he needed to set the record straight. You are one of the leading voices in the Bitcoin community today. You have almost a million followers across all your social media channels. Uh, but I'm sure you didn't start out at a million. So I've, uh, I'm curious to hear, when did you first start writing and sharing your ideas about Bitcoin and crypto? Yeah, so uh, it actually was a catalyst moment in 2018 when Naval Ravikant, a really, really well-known uh, angel investor in Silicon Valley, called Bitcoin hodlers free riders. Uh, and I felt that Silicon Valley had so misunderstood Bitcoin and the point of Bitcoin to such a degree that I felt angered and compelled to write content that would basically set the record straight. So my first, first article I wrote was uh, hodlers are the revolutionaries which walks through the role that hodlers play in Bitcoin's adoption. So hodlers are the core root of why Bitcoin exists or any money existed. It starts with the believers. So then started to go build like a FUD list of like, okay, what are the top things that are annoying the fuck out of me right now? <laughs> proof of work was one of those where proof of work is wasteful. It was a big narrative in 2018. No, uh, proof of work is efficient, which I titled to make sure I triggered as many people as possible so they'd either reply to it or share it. And also I build my content on, on the shoulders of giants. You know, what, what I'm really good at is taking a lot of people's thoughts, putting it together in a cohesive narrative, tightening it up and making a steel manned argument uh, for or against something. Now it's taken on a lot of different forms. As a veteran, you've seen your fair share of controversies and volatility, and you were working at blockchain.com during the Mt. Gox Bitcoin exchange collapse, which was 2014, if I remember correctly. That exchange you know, was believed to lost, to have lost hundreds of thousands of Bitcoins and eventually it filed for bankruptcy. We still hear headlines about it today. What do you remember about that time or that event? Yeah, well, first of all, I had notified Wall Street Journal, Forbes and Fortune about this six months prior. So I still have the emails where I'm like, look, so first of all, if you go to bitcointalks.org, there are hundreds of pages 
of people saying, I can't get my money out. That combined with, you know, the two main venues back in that day were 95% of trading volume was Gox, then 5% was Bitstamp. Bitstamp's price per Bitcoin was lower than Mt. Gox. Well, how does that happen? I mean, if money was freely flowing, then you'd be able to arbitrage the difference, right? Well, no, what was happening is they couldn't complete the fiat leg of it or fiat legs took a long time. I think you could only do it with Japanese banks. It was kind of complicated. Um, so the reason why the price of Bitcoin was higher in Mt. Gox is that people were buying Bitcoin at a premium in order to get it out of Mt. Gox because the fiat legs weren't working. So they would just buy it and get their money out through Bitcoin. Both of those made it fairly obvious that there was <laughs> uh, fiat banking withdrawal issues. Um, now, granted, in 2013, the commentary from mainstream media and, and understanding of how Bitcoin worked was extremely primitive and 99% objectively raw, uh, even from those publications. That was a very frustrating and formulative experience to how I understood mainstream press. Um, I never really had interacted with press before, and I got quoted in most of these publications over the time just because I built up a, develop a relationship with the journalists. And, um, you know, basically they were looking for sources to help them think through uh, how what was happening in, in, the, in the Bitcoin world. Gox collapsed. I think people look at FTX Day and they go, wow, this is like this is like an apocalypse. Well, this is far worse. Imagine FTX, Binance, Coinbase, and Kraken all going down at the same time. That's the equivalence. I mean, if Mt. Gox was 95% of trading volume, we weren't sure if Bitcoin was gonna come back from that. We weren't sure if Bitcoin, this would just devastate demand for Bitcoin and devastate perception in the industry for a while. And it did to some extent, but you know, we weren't sure if this was like the death blow, right? Kind of fast forward a bit, you know, when we look at today with FTX, a lot of people consider this like, this is really bad and very negative. I'm not trying to like reframe this as like a minor incident. This was a, I didn't expect to see things like this happen today. Let's put it that way. Like FTX seemed to be above board and was run by like Americans and had raised all this money. I definitely did not expect something at that scale at this era. I thought, I thought we were done with those. But unfortunately, it sounds like there's still a lot of that and there's still a lot of systemic risk. So yeah, I would say today we're at a much stronger spot. Uh, there's so much core infrastructure, there's so much more resilience to the industry that I am not worried at all. My deepest condolences, I guess, to anybody that had any assets trapped with those firms. What do you believe will be some of the long-term consequences of what just happened with FTX? Yeah, I mean, the consequences... What we're going to see is I think we're seeing a lot of politicians jockey to try to get favorable positioning ahead of like uh, some like more intense regulation. So I think the outcome of this is that we're going to see regulatory frameworks finally solidify because this gives pressure to Congress to actually pass a law versus like agencies trying to come up with their own interpretation. And then I think we're going to see more enforcement on a criminal basis, criminal and civil. We're starting to see the SEC finally catch up to all these scams that were going on. You're also going to see depressed demand from retail and depressed demand from institutions for a while as they're going to kind of be shaken out and they're going to go, whoa, wait a second, maybe I'm going to reconsider my, my thesis on this space. This is typical bear market activities though. So we'll see that kind of like play out over the next year. The next year and a half, two years, I think we start to see everyone who's shaken out, they're gone. But then we see that foundational floor develop and whoever survives through that, that's the next foundation for the next bull run. So it's been 10 years or even more since you got that first Bitcoin. What would you say has changed most about Dan Held since that day? You want a positive or negative spin on that? 
I'll do, I'll, I guess I'll do both. So positive is I learned a lot about building companies. I learned a lot about market cycles. Like I got a crash course where I had three bull bear markets in 10 years. On the positive side, I've kind of seen it all. I've experienced it, I felt it, and that's going to make me a better investor in the long term and makes me a little bit more kind of like a calm sailor at, at this, on the seas versus like one that's new and, and, and panics when they see a storm. And then also like pretty cool to see how far Bitcoin's come. I mean, we didn't, we hoped it would reach this stage, but it's awesome to see that we did succeed. Like Bitcoin is a hundred million people that believe in it. That's incredible. Like Bitcoin's ultimately about freedom and I'm excited for that it survived and that we're here and we haven't been squashed yet. I think we are achieving, quickly achieving escape velocity too, where it can't be crushed. It's still in a, in a, in a semi-fragile state where if you understand how the game theory works and if governments ban it, Depends on who bans it, but you could alter the growth trajectory quite a bit. And I'd like to see Bitcoin survive before I die. For me, I'm, I'm very happy where we're at. And I think we will achieve that escape velocity. We are like basically hitting that arc. On the, on the negative side, I, I constantly underestimate humankind's stupidity and greed every single time. See, you see a lot of really messed up stuff like FTX. Like I've seen so many of those. I wouldn't go back and, and, and unwind it all, of course, like. I'm excited to have played a part. It's been a fascinating journey, but at the same time, it does come with some scars. Okay, and today you are at Trust Machines. Can you tell us a little bit about what your, your role is there? I'm a marketing advisor over there. So Trust Machines is trying to be the consensus for Bitcoin to build a bunch of Bitcoin applications on top of uh, or Bitcoin DeFi on top of the Bitcoin network, which is much harder to work with. Can't do all a lot of the cool stuff Ethereum and Solana can do. But I personally care the most about Bitcoin, and I think unlocking DeFi on top of Bitcoin is building DeFi on top of a more stable foundation with the number one asset in the space and the number one asset that I would consider it the best money we have anywhere in the world, whether it be fiat or crypto. So for me, Trust Machines is, is actioning on that, and my role there is to help them scale out some of their marketing efforts. Well, I look forward to seeing what you and Trust Machines can do in the future. And as always, I want to wrap up by asking you how our listeners can find out more about you and read some of your work. Well, if you want my quick, quick hits on Bitcoin, Twitter at Dan Held is where you're going to want to follow me. Or if you want my longer form content, go to danheld.com slash blog. And then of course, if you want like longer form content, that's sort of like my, my deeper thoughts. It's my newsletter called The Held Report. My last name is H-E-L-D, theheldreport.com. So there you can go subscribe to my newsletter and get uh, stay up to date with everything going on in the crypto world. And it is excellent content. I highly recommend everyone listening to go check it out and uh, follow Dan on socials and all of anywhere you can follow him. You, you, it, it's always worth the read. Um, so thank you so much, Dan, for coming. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. And I hope to see you again at the next conference or event. Sounds good. Next beer is on me, Mauricio, and great to see you. Thanks, brother. In my early days, I met a lot of Bitcoiners that got it quickly but that's because they had spent years living under inflation. Dan came from suburban Texas, and he was on track for a successful career in traditional finance. But to him, the 2008 crisis was a pivotal moment. It's moments like these that people start asking questions about the system they live in. And when Dan found other people in San Francisco who were also questioning the financial system, he began a completely different journey and one that changed his life and career. But it hasn't all been easy. Dan's been through the market swings, the ups and the downs. He's seen companies and his friends fail. 
He's watched his own wealth rise and fall by 85% multiple times. And through it all, he's earned the strength to stay calm at sea, and as he puts it, even in stormy weather. This, I believe, makes him one of the most credible voices in the Bitcoin community. Despite Mt. Gox, despite FTX, and despite all the other bad actors, Dan Held still believes in Bitcoin. From a beard that repaid with a casacious coin to the nearly million followers he has today, Bitcoin has changed his life forever, and his educational content has helped millions start their own individual journeys. I want to thank you, Dan, so much for joining me, and thank you all for listening. And be sure to check out the show notes for links to Dan's work. If you enjoyed this because of bitcoin episode i would be very grateful for the five seconds it would take you to drop us a review and give us a rating on your favorite podcasting platform this will really help us reach even more listeners and if you'd like to learn more about bitcoin be sure to check out our newsletter by subscribing at ledn.io that's ledn.io again this was mauricio di bartolomeo stay tuned for our next episode and until then muchas gracias y los quiero mucho chao chao